So I think the challenge has been post-funding is how do you maintain a really positive culture? Uh, how do you, you know, return the investment that your stakeholders are eventually looking for uh, in a specific period of time? And how do you do all of that without compromising the integrity of, of how you want to run a business and how you want your business um, to, to be seen? Hey, welcome to My Company Story. I'm your host, Don Burge. My Company Story is a podcast where I get to interview some of the most interesting business owners and CEOs about the challenges that they've faced and how they've overcome them. Enjoy the show. I'm here with Justin Wheeler. Justin is the CEO and co-founder of Fundraise. Welcome to My Company Story, Justin. Thank you very much. Justin, tell us a little bit about Fundraise, what you guys do, who your customers are, number of employees. Give us an idea about Fundraise. Sure. Uh, so Fundraise is a software company based here in Long Beach, California. We are um, a software solution for nonprofit organizations that are looking to manage their donors and supporters and um, looking to really accelerate their online fundraising through all sorts of different uh, fundraising channels online and off. Okay. Uh, we have uh, 60 employees and uh, we've been around for about four and a half years. Great. And uh, Justin, tell us a little bit about how you got to fundraise. Before we talk about fundraise, tell us about your journey and how you uh, how that came about. Sure. So uh, my uh, sophomore year in college, I was walking back to my dorm and I saw a poster and it was intriguing. So I went into this room uh, and it was a poster of a documentary screening. Um, and it was a, a film that a couple guys from USC made. Mm -hmm. uh, they traveled to Uganda and they documented these children that were being abducted uh, and conscripted to fight as child soldiers. What year was this? This was in 2005. So there was a civil war going on in Uganda at that time. A civil war going on in Uganda. Um, thousands of kids were being abducted and uh, and then going back into villages, slaughtering their families. Jeez. It was it was brutal. Wow. Uh, so I saw this 45-minute documentary and my world was flipped upside down. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was going to college, but didn't know what I wanted to do. Right. And uh, and so logically, <laughs> I uh, made the next step, and I quit my job in the summer and took a flight out to Uganda and spent the summer in Uganda. So you saw a movie in school, and you jump on a flight and go to Uganda. I did with with my best friend. Okay. And uh, the first night there, we uh, we went to visit. You know what we saw in the documentary. We saw these um, like these these parks where. Uh, thousands of kids would come and sleep overnight and the Ugandan military would come up and protect them uh, because it was safer to be protected uh, than what it was to sleep at your own home. Wow. And so we went to one of these night centers is what they called them. And we saw thousands of kids and on our walk back home to the house that we were staying at, uh, we actually got in crossfire between the rebel army who was coming in to abduct children and the UPDF, the Ugandan military. Holy cow. Here you are growing up in Southern California and, and, and a nice cushy life and you're in the middle of Uganda civil war getting crossfired at the Yeah, it was, I mean, crazy. It, it was, you know, it was so real to the point, and we were so close to it that we literally thought we were going to die that night. Yeah. Um, but it, it really changed my perspective and outlook on life. Uh, these are, you know, this is something that many of these kids never knew any different, right? right. I mean, this has been going on. That's their time. life. They don't know exactly. differently. Yeah. Over 12 years at this time. And right. so, um, I, when we came back to the States, uh, you know, I, w I went back to those filmmakers and said, Hey, we want to, we want to do something about this. We actually want, uh, to, to help these kids, put them in school, whatever it would take. And so over the next five years, I spent, I spent, uh, building up an organization, uh, called invisible children. Mm -hmm. And today is no most known for uh, a campaign we launched in 2012 called 
Coney 2012. Say again, Coney? Coney 2012. Okay. And it was a 30-minute documentary um, with the goal of making Joseph Coney famous. And uh, the goal was 500,000 views in one year. Now, who is Joseph Coney? Joseph Coney is the leader of this rebel army. He's Uh, a bad guy. He's the bad guy. He's a bad guy. Uh, Very bad. uh, And... Uh, is the reason why this conflict um, has, has continued for so long. It's okay. Africa's longest running war. Wow. And uh, and so we put a, a documentary um, out, and in six days, it was viewed by a, a hundred million people. A hundred million people saw was, this thing. It was the most viral video on the internet wow. at the time. That was it, in what, 2012. All right. Uh, President Obama at the time tweeted about it. Wow. Every major A-list celebrity tweeted about it. I mean, it caught the attention of, of America. Okay. Um, and millions of dollars were raised uh, during that week, uh, and it was it was eye opening. Um, and so uh, it was you know it was it was a great experience. That's fantastic! Congratulations! What a great what a great story. So from that, then where did you go from where did where did your life lead you after that? So yeah, so before um, before the the Coney twenty twelve campaign happened, uh, my wife and I um, helped start a, a nonprofit organization that was helping North Korean refugees, okay. and so. My wife and I started becoming very interested in, in North Korea, uh, looking for organizations to donate to. And we found that there's there wasn't a single organization in the United States that was working on North Korea. Mm-hmm. Most of us think when we think of North Korea, we think of crazy Kims and nuclear weapons. Right. Not not a place where like ph- philanthropy dollars should go. Uh, so we uh, we, you know, uh, took another trip and went this time to the border of North Korea and China. This was nine months after we got married. Uh, so <laughs> nice my, father-in-law, yeah, my father-in-law still hates me for this. Um, but we, we went uh, to the border of North Korea and China, spent two and a half months and met um, dozens of North Koreans that were in hiding in China. And I say in hiding because the Chinese government doesn't allow them in their country and North Koreans aren't allowed to leave their country. Wow. But, actually, these, but these individuals actually did leave North Korea. They left, they left North Korea for food, for protection. Uh, and if they were caught, uh, the Chinese government would repatriate them back to North Korea. And depending on like what they got access to, they could be executed for leaving their country. They definitely would spend time in re-education camps, political prison camps in, in North Korea. Wow. So you met these guys, who thousands of them, right, that are in China now and hiding out from the Chinese and hiding from the North Koreans. Yeah. And, and the problem is um, a lot of women are actually being trafficked because they have zero rights in China. Uh, they're being sold to Chinese farmers because uh, there's a there's a shortage of marriageable women in China. Oh, right. I've heard that. And, and so you see a lot of North Koreans that are basically you know, forced to marry these, these men. And, um, and it just becomes a very complicated problem. So, so what do you and your wife do? You're standing on the border out there. You're seeing this problem. What do you do? We met this, uh, 21 year old girl who at the age of 12 was sold to the Chinese man and, uh, has wanted to escape since the very first day of stepping foot in China. She asked us if we could help, came back to the United States and we decided that we were going to, um, create an organization that was going to help North Korean refugees escape, uh, China into Southeast Asia, so it's mm-hmm. about a three thousand mile journey, mm-hmm. um, and uh, to to make it so that they could get the proper paperwork to legally resettle. Wow! And so this is you know using this this uh, what's known today as the modern day underground railroad. Uh, we would help North Koreans. We would smuggle North Koreans out of China, uh, traversing almost the entire country using all modes of transportation, going hiking through jungles in Southeast Asia. And then finally, uh, we would go to this undisclosed country that we don't um, disclose publicly for security reasons. And it's the, it's the only one of the only countries in Southeast Asia that allows North Koreans to legally resettle uh, back to South Korea or the United States. Wow, and so, so, you're, as you, so you and your wife started this, this group, this organization to help fund 
uh, North Koreans who want to get out of North Korea, go through China, where they can't see in China, get to the South American, Southeast Asian country so that they can then move back to South Korea or wherever they want to go. Uh, correct. Correct. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and along with uh, another individual as well, a good friend of ours, uh, was, was a big part of, of, of orchestrating this whole thing. And, um, and basically, we started in 2010 is when we launched our first rescue mission. Mm. Uh, I was on the ground for it. I helped lead the rescue mission uh, through China. Uh, we went through, you know, several security checkpoints. I mean, at, at the end of the day, like if North Korea was caught, you know, especially the deeper we got into China, uh, the, the harsher their punishment would be. If I was caught, I would spend some time in, in jail in China, but eventually be repatriated to, to the U.S. Because the U.S. would help get you out, but they wouldn't do anything about the people you couldn't do anything uh, for, for North Koreans. Um, and, and so, you know, the, we, we obsessed over security, uh, and we also believed that technology had a big role to play in making um, these rescues successful. Um, so we, we built a rescue app, and uh, over the course of about five and a half years, we rescued over a thousand North Korean refugees. Wow, congratulations. So you've, you've rescued over a thousand North Koreans because of your efforts to get out of North Korea and, and, re, and move somewhere else. That's right. Fantastic, That's right. congratulations. So then now t tell us now about Fundraise. How did you move from that experience into this company called Fundraise? It's a for-profit company, right? Correct, yeah, it's a for-profit company. Um, but basically, uh, you know, day one in the nonprofit space, uh, nonprofit employees, nonprofit workers um, have to oftentimes think of creative ways to run a business with their hands tied behind their back. There's a lot of obstacles nonprofits um, have, whether that's, you know, the, uh, the ratio of how much money should go towards programs versus operations. Uh, and there's, uh, most nonprofits are underfunded. We took a different approach. We basically uh, became a very grassroots funded organization. Uh, and so we utilized technology for most of our, most of the dollars we raised were, were given online. Mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago, that was not something that was very common in, in definitely in the nonprofit space. Um, and, you know, we always had this, these very complicated and complex systems that we would have to build, um, whether it was proprietary or jerry-rig a couple different systems together to achieve kind of the end result we were looking for. And so finally, uh, in 2015, I decided to uh, start my own company uh, that would be a software-based company to help nonprofit organizations uh, manage their supporters. And basically what, what you see today is you see nonprofits using four or five different technology solutions, and we wanted to streamline that all into one system. I see. So that's what Fundraise became, is this one system that you can, that a nonprofit organization can use to help them raise money and organize and, and just do all the back office stuff, not reinvent the wheel every time. Exactly. And, and what most people don't realize is how big the nonprofit market is. So in the U.S. alone, you have one and a half million nonprofits. Wow. Uh, and last year, $400 billion was donated to charity. Wow. And today, only about eight and a half percent of that is captured online. So there's a lot of opportunity to dis disrupt the nonprofit space, to move a lot of dollars online because it's more efficient, it's more effective, and that's just where, where today's donor wants to give, is they want to give through online means. So Justice, give our audience an, an, uh, an idea of who your uh, typical client is, or who an ideal client would have been, and how you help them. What, get, talk, take us, visualize what, what you do, what the sure, company yeah. is. So an ideal client for us is an organization that um, believes in technology as an accelerator to their mission. And what I mean by that is they understand that technology can help them scale quickly. Um, 
and and willing to make the investments um, to, to do that. And so organizations uh, that uh, that really believe in online fundraising channels, whether it's peer to peer, whether it's event fundraising, or just you know th- um, through your own website, that, that those types of simple fundraising mechanisms, if organizations believe in that. Um, that's a good start. So if they believe in that, and, and instead of them reinventing the wheel and tra- figuring out how to do it themselves, they'll just hire you or buy your software? Yeah, they'll, they'll buy our software and it embeds into your website. You, we have our own CMS, so you can create your own fundraising websites through, through our technology. Um, so it's, it's, it's a self-service platform where uh, your marketing or communications team would use this to build out your campaigns and, and so forth for, for fundraising. That's fantastic. That's great. And your audience is worldwide or, or yeah, we're, we're worldwide focused. Um, I mean, we've, we've got customers in seven or eight other countries outside of the United States, uh, really focusing on the U.S. market today, uh, because as I mentioned earlier, there's it's a big market and uh, lots of opportunity for growth. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, back kind of to the, the kind of ideal customer profile as well. We found a lot of success in like human service industry. So uh, in nonprofits, there's all these different verticals that you could focus on human rights, human services, religious. So what's a human service? Human service are organizations like hospitals, um, uh, cancer research foundations. These are organizations that are, I think, already thinking progressively about Mm. the end user and how they can actually grow and scale their businesses. And so we found a lot of success in that. Great. Now, what trends do you see going on? I mean, you've been in this space for quite some time, your whole career, really. What trends do you see going on in this nonprofit or in the fundraise or or in in your area? So the thing, the interesting thing that I'm seeing today is that the fastest growing organizations um, are organizations who are adopting um, to technology and mm-hmm. who understand that if they want to be around in 5, 10, 15 years from now, that they have to attract a younger donor demographic. Mm-hmm. A lot of these large nonprofits that have existed, you know, uh, for the past several decades, their, their donor base is 70 plus mm-hmm. and, and they don't have a strategy for actually recruiting, you know, gener- generation Y uh, millennials. And what's interesting about that is, you know, the millennials specifically are on the biggest uh, wealth transfer in history. Mm-hmm. $30 trillion is going to be transferred to millennials. And a lot of times these bigger nonprofits underwrite this generation as, 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 a, as, as a generation that can give significant amount of money. Um, and in the next few years, that's going to change. I and see. you're already starting to see that t- change. Oh. And so I think organizations need to adopt uh, to technology so that they can attract uh, this new generation of donors that um, a lot of organizations have had a hard time actually attracting. And that's what fundraising, your company, does. It plugs right into that that leading trend of, of tapping into that market. Exactly. It's, it's you know, we create experiences for donors that they're familiar uh, to having on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. If you purchase a Netflix account, if you buy something off of Amazon, right, we're all doing that today. Uh, our software, think about our software like that, but for nonprofits, mm-hmm. attracting young donors uh, to the organization. That's great. Uh, Justin, on this show, a lot of business owners are listening who are running companies and have raised money, raising money, and the th- thought, uh, thinking about doing it. You've gone through all that. You've gone through Series A funding. Can you tell, uh, talk to the business owners and CEOs who may be listening about some of the challenges that you have faced and how you've overcome them? Sure. Yeah, I mean, in uh, specifically in software and technology, you know, you have you have two paths. You have you have the venture backed path, or you have the bootstrapped path. Um, and at the, at the uh, end of the day, you have to make a decision which route you're going to take. And I think for us, we looked at the market, right? We have a competitor that's a billion dollar company in our space. Mm. Um, and we see this as an, we saw this as an opportunity um, to, as a market where we could grow fast and where we could scale the business. Um, and to do that, it would be more advantageous for us to raise capital. 
So we, you know, we raised, we've raised about $15 million in venture capital. And that comes with expectation. That comes with the expectation of, of growth, uh, of scale, um, and sometimes at, and it could be at all costs. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the, the challenges that our company has had to face is how do we, in, how do we, uh, as a company that's, you know, that's, I would say is in like the, it, we're in a space where we're a for-profit company, but we're helping nonprofits. Right. Right. So a lot of the people that work on our company, um, they sometimes feel like fundraise could be a nonprofit because of our clientele, right? right. You, you walk into our office and you have these pictures of amazing organizations doing amazing things around the world. And it's not your normal kind of like tech startup. But your office. employees feel good about they doing feel, some very, very good things exactly. in the world. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we have to grow, right? Mm-hmm. We have to scale. Like we have, we have, we have to be profitable. We have to be profitable. We have expectations from, from these investors. And so uh, it's been managing that expectation with the expectation of our, our, our staff, of business decisions that we need to make uh, to get the company to the next level um, sometimes uh, won't always align with like your early founding staff members, mm-hmm. right? People who were there before there was any capital in the business. Uh, maybe when it did feel more like a nonprofit because, you know, there were no outside investors and uh, you could do whatever you want with a company. Um, and so I think the challenge has been post funding is how do you maintain a really positive culture? Uh, how do you, you know, return the investment that your stakeholders are eventually looking for uh, in a specific period of time, and how do you do all of that without compromising the integrity of of how you want to run a business and how you want your business um, to to be seen, um, you yeah. know, by your employees and outside stakeholders and so forth. Interesting, yeah. So as you grow and as you've raised money, you are uh, you have to be accountable to those people who gave you the money, and and your employees have to get on board with that, and yet still maintain the the uh, nature of working with nonprofits and doing good in the world, how do you do that in a capitalistic environment? Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, traditionally what you see at least in like bigger corporations is there's, it's always been about profit over the people. And I think that you can run a really big business that's highly profitable, but focus on people over profit still. And that's what you're doing. And that's what we're doing. And that's what we're aiming to. I think we can always get better at it. But I think that, you know, for me, scaling the business should not come at the cost of hurting your employees. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, I mean, w- with that said, we're a startup. We're going to, mm-hmm. we have our challenges. We're going to have our setbacks. We're going to have our ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, that's the focus. And, and to mean, to be able to, keep, to, to align that with investors who also believe that I think is, is important. It's key. That's fascinating, Justin. So what, what lessons would you want to pass along to other, besides this, to other business owners that may be listening? What have you learned along the way? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. So I think, you know, along the theme of, of funding, I think for me, um, I wish that I, when, when you, every time you, you know, you raise funding, the company gets valued. Um, and that value is, is usually early on is not really based on, it's a multiplier on your revenue, right? right? So, um, it's not what your actual revenue is. And so when you get to the next round, so series B in our case, uh, you have to ensure that you've scaled the business to the next metrics to raise a Series B or a Series C. So um, what you see oftentimes is companies will overcapitalize and raise at a high valuation, take in a bunch of money, and not either get to a Series B or have to have a down round. And it hurt all shareholders. Mostly people hurt from that are your employees who have you know stake in the company because um, they get majorly diluted. And so I think like what I would have told myself two years ago when we, when we raised funds was to really think about the future mm. of the next several rounds and is what we're raising at today realistic for us to achieve 
um, at the same level of multiple, you know, in a Series B round, for instance. So fascinating. So, so in other words, you would have told yourself two years ago that, hey, don't be so uh, much going for the biggest valuation you can get and as much money in Series A. Think about where Series B and Series C will be and then kind of play your move with Series A funding thinking about where you want B and C to go and how that will all play into effect. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's the two things I would have wish I would have asked myself more is do we need this much capital, you know, to run the business for the next one year or two years? And is this valuation realistic for us when we go come time to raise for series B? Right. Those are the two questions I wish I would have spent more time thinking through. Uh, not necessarily because um it's it's made it harder to raise a series b like the company has grown and the company is scaling in a, in a very nice way um but it caught there was a lot of stress in the last 18 months right mm-hmm. when you when you when you take on that amount of funding and you go from five employees to 60 it's a lot of stress it's yes. a lot of pressure right you are burning a lot of capital every month with the future promise that this company is going to be profitable someday um, and there's a lot of variables that you can't control or you don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm for, we've had, we put together a really exceptional team and we've grown at like some pretty incredible rates, um, but potentially could have been less stressful with less cash um, in, in the beginning. And so that's, that's like the, I don't know if I would have maybe changed anything, but maybe thinking through that more, getting more outside advice could have been interesting. That's great. That's a great advice to pass along, Justin. You are one busy guy. It sounds like with the money you've raised and, and, and what you're doing with fun uh, fundraise, uh, you're still involved with the North Korean movement? Yep. So uh, I'm the chairman of the board at Liberty North Korea. Uh, they're, uh, they have an, they're based actually also in, in Long Beach, uh, their office. They also have a, an office in Seoul, South Korea, but very much still involved with uh, with Liberty North Korea. And the Uganda uh, operation, that's still going on? That's still going on. It's a small team uh, today based out of D.C. working um, exclusively on policy uh, on the issue. Great. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on all you've done in, in, in such a short, relatively short period of time. Justin, if, if anyone listening wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Um, so a couple, a couple different ways. Uh, one, you can uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, so Justin Wheeler um, should come up. Uh, you can email me, justin at fundraise.org. Uh, fundraise, there's no D, so F-U-N-R-A-I-S-E.org. Uh, and then call or text, 562-242-8160. Great. Justin, thanks so much for being on the show. Fascinating story, and look forward to hearing about your future endeavors. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Okay. Hey, thanks for listening to My Company Story. We have new episodes coming out every week, so please subscribe if you like this. And if you'd like to hear previous episodes, you can go to mycompanystory.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you or someone you know would be interested in coming on the show, please email me at don at Thanks for listening.